If you have a Bible and you want to open it, in a minute or so, we're going to read from Acts chapter 10. Those words will also be on the screen. In Acts chapters 10 and 11, there is a lot of press given to one story, and it's three times it's given to it. And it's the story of Peter going to Cornelius in Caesarea. Why is it emphasized so much? Because this chapter is a hinge of sorts in the book of Acts that Luke is giving us. It's a hinge that swings, and as it swings, the door is opening to say, this is how the gospel is going out and forward to all the nations. So let's open our Bibles and let's walk through that door and see how the gospel goes forward. I'm going to read uh, Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 33. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius! Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to the earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up, go downstairs, do not hesitate, and go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I am the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. 
But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising uh, any objection. May I ask you why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayers and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Spirit of the living God, I pray that you will bless the reading of your word, which is true and is relevant today as it was thousands of years ago. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It was time to go, and we were stuck on the mountain. It was at one of our men's retreat many years ago at Kerwin's cabin. One road in, one road out, and the road out was covered by a fallen tree. A physical barrier to us leaving. Thankfully, as handy as some people are, the physical barrier was removed with the chainsaw, and we were on our way home after some time. There are other barriers in life, though, too, right? And you may come up against those barriers, and it might not be a tree. There's barriers that are things like national barriers, borders, and laws. Things that are ethnic barriers, cultural barriers, language barriers, social barriers, and customs. In the Old Testament, if someone wanted to become Jewish, they had to cross several barriers in order to do so. If somebody who was, in other words, called a Gentile in this passage, a non-Jewish person, wanted to, become, wanted to convert and become Jewish, they had to cross barriers not only of their religious beliefs to believe in the God of Israel, but they had to convert their nationality to the nation of Israel. They also had to change their cultural customs. They could only eat certain foods that were kosher, right? Kosher foods, that's what was being referred to in this passage we read, and, and so forth. And what Luke is doing in this text in Acts chapter 10 is he is showing us God's plan is for the gospel to go out to all the nations and to people and to cultures. We have read so far in Acts and seen the stories of what we've been told about people who have believed in Jesus like the sorcerer from Samaria, the treasurer of the queen from Ethiopia, the Jewish ruling leader from Asia Minor, and now a soldier from Rome. What is clearly happening is the door is swinging open and saying the gospel is going out to the ends of the earth, to all peoples from every tribe, tongue, and language. It crosses barriers. It crosses barriers. And what I want to talk to you about today is since that gospel crosses barriers, let's look at two things. How that gospel crosses barriers, what kind of barriers, and then also breaking down those barriers. The gospel breaks down barriers of favoritism that we have in our hearts. So first, the gospel crosses the barrier here, in this case, to officials from an oppressive, occupying government. Right? That's what Cornelius represents to Peter. You're an occupying force in our country, and you're oppressing us, and I'm supposed to tell you about Jesus. Yeah, I don't know if I want to do that. I think that's kind of his attitude, right? What do we know about Cornelius? He's a soldier of Rome. In fact, he's a centurion. He's in charge of 100 men within the Italian regiment from Rome. He has worked his way up through the ranks and become uh, in this prominent position. He is well paid, which is evident by the staff, the servants that he has at his house, as well as that his family was posted with him 
at Caesarea, okay, so where he's been posted there in Israel. Um, and so he's paid well. He's well-respected, right? We're told he's seeking God in verse 2, that he's a God-fearer. That means he really is seeking God. He's trying to do what is right. And he's really intrigued by the, the Jewish people. And he's, he's not a full convert. He hasn't fully converted to their ways. He's, he's a Roman soldier, but he's attracted to Judaism. And so while he's not fully accepted, he is respected by them. We're told that in the text, that he is respected. He worships God, he prays, and he gives generously to the poor, to those in need. But it's not quite enough. Something's still missing. Something's missing, and the Spirit of God is working on Cornelius. Now, how do we know that? We know that because verse 3 tells us that an angel appears to him and gives him this vision, right? And so, he's given this vision of what he must do. So a question might arise in our minds, wait, is, is Cornelius already a Christian? Maybe he's there. It says he's God-fearing. It says he's faithful. It says he gives generously. Maybe he's there. And the answer to the question is, is he already a Christian? The answer to that is no, because that's why God is sending Peter there to tell him about Jesus and the resurrection. However, Cornelius already does have some foundational pieces, some framework, if you will, that has prepared him to receive the message that Peter is going to give him. Right? What are some of those pieces? He's a God, he believes there's a God, okay? He's not an atheist. He believes there's a God. And, and probably one God, even though he's from Rome, being a God-fearer is probably saying, okay, not this just pantheon of gods of like a mythological kind of thing, but that there is a God that, that is real and is, and is the ruler of all. He also believes, secondly, that he must give account to that God. He probably knows this as a soldier. He's always got to give an account to what he's doing. To the ones above him. He's no problem understanding, yeah, there's, there's a boss, there's a chief. And he knows he's got to give an account to this God for his life. He also probably believes that he in some way needs the help of this God. Because that's why he prays to this God, why he asks for things. Right? And so, here he is, and he knows these things that are kind of a general framework, but something's still missing. Sometimes when I talk to... Um, my unchristian friends and stuff, they ask great questions. And one of the questions sometimes they ask me is, well, the Bible just seems kind of unfair. I mean, why is, you know, if somebody is a good person and they know there's a God and they're trying to do what's right and they even give money to, to great needs and causes, but they don't know Jesus, how can that person not be accepted by God? I mean, it just doesn't seem right. And my response to that is, if somebody doesn't know Jesus, but wants to know God, wants to know Jesus, and wants to go to heaven, God makes a way for that to happen. He's big enough to do that. How do we know that? Acts chapter 10, Cornelius. He's praying, God, I, I want to know. God says, okay, I'm going to send somebody to you. He sends people. A friend of mine from college, Seth George, is a captain in the army. He was a chaplain. And um, in the spring of 2005, he met an Iraqi man near Tikrit, the hometown of Saddam Hussein. And um, this man was brought to him by an American contractor because the man wanted to talk to a religious man, talk to a chaplain, and said, Can you, I need to talk to somebody about God. And so the contractor brings him and introduces him to the chaplain, to Seth, my friend. And um, the man comes to him and says, Last Friday I was praying to God, asking God to send someone to me to tell me about your God. And here you are. So tell me. 
And so Seth shares the gospel with him, and the man prays and trusts in Jesus, believes that message, and says, yeah, this makes sense. I believe, and I want to follow Jesus as my Savior. He was the first one in his hometown to become a Christian. So to that objection, when people want to know God, but like, what if if they want to know? God makes it happen. Normally, he does it by sending someone to him like he does with Peter. Like he did with my friend Seth. Like he's doing with Molly Fletcher, who left this week to go to Ireland. Like he will do with you. To your friends and your neighbors. That's how the message gets heard. Is you tell people. You share your life. You share what you know about Jesus. And so the gospel crosses barriers Things that you're like, oh, wait, I never thought about it going that direction or going there. I would have never thought that. But the other thing it does as it is crossing barriers, it does something in our heart and reveals to us things about our favoritism and it breaks down walls that we have within us. And we see this with Peter in verse 28. Will you put that slide on the screen? Verse 28. I think it's in there. I'll read it to you if not. Oh, there it is. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. I should not call anyone impure or unclean. And God has shown that to him. Right before he's saying, I had this wall. No. But now, okay, it's got to break down and it's got to break down my favoritism so I can go to that person. How, what does he mean by unclean or impure, right? He's referring to Jewish Old Testament customs, and many of you probably know this, but that, that means if, if you came into contact with somebody who was, who was unclean for something, it meant they were ceremonially unclean, and that until they became clean again, they were not allowed to go into the temple to worship God because they were impure. And so that's what Peter's referring to. Staying with a Gentile in their house could make them unclean. Just notice all the barriers that Peter has to cross. For this. I mean, there's probably several. I'm just going to give you three. Here's one. In Joppa, Peter goes there, and he's told to go there to stay with whom? A man named Simon, whose job is what? The tanner. What do tanners do? They take rawhide and make it into leather, which means they have dead animals around, right, for the hides. And being around dead animals for a Jew makes you ceremonially unclean. And I don't remember the specific thing. I think it's something like you've got to wait seven days or something like that before you can even go to temple again. And so Peter has to go stay with a guy who makes him unclean because he's a tanner. Secondly, Peter gets the vision on the roof of all the animals that are not kosher. They're unclean animals, the animals they were told not to eat. Now, you and I are glad for that because this is the beginning of good old barbecue, right? Like you can eat pigs, right? All right? Perfect. Bacon because of that. Um, so, but... Peter sees this, and, he, and, and God says, kill and eat. And Peter's like, yeah, I don't think so, God. You said no, and I'm not breaking your law. I've never done this. I'm not doing it. And God repeats it three times. That seems to be a thing with Peter, by the way, three times. You can think about that later. But anyways, God repeats it three times to him before Peter's like, okay, I get it. Okay, okay. So that's another barrier he's got to cross. And then what does Peter do? He goes off to Cornelius' house, who is a Gentile who's a soldier of the occupying force in his country, right? As I already mentioned before, the government that crucified Jesus, his friend and Savior. And he has to go to that man and say, okay, look, your people killed this guy. Yet Peter goes, and I wonder 
if part of what Peter is thinking about when he doesn't want to go is also thinking about the Old Testament prophet Jonah, whom God says, okay, Jonah, go to Nineveh. Go to the enemy. Go to the foreign land and tell them. And Jonah's like, yeah, I don't want to go. I'm going the other way. And if you know the story of Jonah, then he sets sail, right, and gets tossed overboard, swallowed by a fish, spit up on shore, and goes to Nineveh, and the city of Nineveh repents, and Jonah's mad that they repented and God was nice to them. That God gave grace to them and mercy. Interestingly enough, Nineveh is in northern Iraq, probably not too far from where my friend Seth George was. God breaks down barriers. And then in verses 34 and 35, notice what we see. Can, I think there's a slide for that as well up there if you can find that. Verses 34 and 35, it says, Then Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. He's saying, okay, my favoritism is being broken down within me. And this verse is saying that, right? That he knows that God does not show favorites. He says the gospel is for everyone, right, of every nation, anyone from every nation who fears him and does what is right. To fear him is to say, okay, God, you're the greatest thing. You're the single greatest controlling factor in my life. Because what is fear? Fear is what grips you or controls you, right? So fear here is not like a fear like, I'm shaking that God is going to suddenly smite me or cut my head off or give me some disease. It's not referring to a scared kind of terror. It's referring to a holy controlling force. To live in fear or reverence of something is to say that is the greatest thing that exists and to live in honor and reverence and fear uh, of it in that way, right? And so to say that you fear God is to say, okay, God, you're the greatest, you're the king. And since that's true, you're my savior. I believe in you, I will follow you, right? And that's why it says, and who do what is right. Because they, right, you're going to follow him and follow his ways. When you're doing that, when you're saying, okay, God is great. He's the savior, the king, and I want to follow his ways. That's scriptural language for saying, okay, you believe in Jesus and you're going to follow him. Man, do we have, this is a sidebar here, but it's not even in my notes. But do we live under so much fear today or what? I don't know, maybe not. I think so. People are afraid of going out in snow and there's like an inch on the ground. Not even an inch. People are afraid of COVID. People are afraid of what the government's going to do, enforce or not enforce. Afraid of wars. We're afraid of disease, cancer. There's lots of things that can rightly cause us to be afraid. But are those things the things that become the controlling forces in our life? Or do we have such a fear for God that God is the controlling force in our life? If you don't have God, all those other fears can dominate you. But if you do have God, then all those other fears are subordinate fears. And if you can set your eyes on God, you can go, you know what? Even in the face of that fear, like we sang, blessed be your name, whatever that is, whether the crops are good or not, whether there's hard times or bad times, God is the greatest. He's my controlling one. Back to favoritism. Favoritism is developed, right, through preferences for things. And it's not always bad, right? Like, I have favorite foods that I just like better than other foods. That's not a bad thing. It's favorite. It's good favorite, right? Like, I like burgers and I like tacos. Both favorites. It's good. But there's other kinds of favoritism, right, that are not quite like that. 
Favoritism to whom you want to be kind to when Scripture says we are to be kind. Favoritism to whom you want to forgive when God says forgive because I forgave you, so you forgive people. Favoritism to whom you want to share the gospel with because it's the mission of Jesus to share it with the whole world. Right? And those kinds of favoritism things need to be broken inside of us, need to be changed so that we develop hearts of love like God has, compassion for all people. Peter had to learn that lesson, and that's what he was learning. We should ask ourselves, what are the narrow cultural doors that we have that we want to make people walk through first before they're allowed to come to Jesus? Those might be favoritism things, right? Things like, national favoritism. Americans tend to be really proud people, and that's okay. It's good to be proud of your country, but it's not the only country on the face of the earth, and it's not better than every other fill-in-the-blank country that you can think of. There might be things about it that are better, sure, but that doesn't mean it's automatically better. It doesn't mean that God thinks we're the best or plays favorites with us because of that, because the gospel is for people from every nation, the Bible says. Maybe you don't want to talk to the immigrants. Maybe you don't want to send missionaries to that country because they haven't been nice to us or they don't deserve it. But God is gathering for his kingdom people. The Bible says from every tribe, from every tongue, from every language, and nation. And in the Bible, nation actually doesn't usually refer to a geopolitical state. It would probably use a word like country to refer to that. Nation uses is ethnos, and it really refers to people groups. People groups often were defined by those borders and nations, but it's referring to people groups. Political favoritism. When my political ideas and views are superior to yours, and so that I think because of that, I think less of you. And I think, oh, if, if you change your views, then maybe you'll get a little closer and you might make a good Christian. Right? That's a kind of favoritism that is not the favoritism, that is not what the Bible would teach. It's very close to a moral favoritism that we like to play. Oh, how good are you? If you've, if you've already got your act together and cleaned yourself up, then wow, I, you're probably great. I mean, you're, you're almost there. You're ready to be a Christian. And if not, then yeah, there's maybe not a lot of hope for you. You realize that's denying the power of the gospel for God to actually come in and change somebody's life, radically change a life, which does, which happens repeatedly, time and time again in the scriptures. He transforms their biases and their behaviors transforms my biases and my behaviors. What about cultural favoritism? You're only willing to welcome Christians who dress a certain way. Maybe they got to have the right clothes or you don't like their tattoos or their accent or their emotional expressiveness or whatever it is, right? People are not the same and God is having people, as we've said already, from all kinds of cultures to make up his kingdom. You and I have to get over thinking that we are better than the other person. It's ingrained into us with grades and competition. And grades and competition, I want to be very clear, are not bad things. 
It's good. Hard work is a good thing. The Bible teaches it. There is fruit to be, uh, to be gained from that. You should be rewarded for certain things as you work. And that's a good and valuable thing. A good work ethic is something Proverbs talks about repeatedly. So I'm not saying that's wrong. Nor am I saying there's no such thing as right and wrong or truth and falsehood. That's not what I'm saying either. What I am saying is this. Having an attitude of being superior means you, by definition, think others are inferior to you, and therefore you look down on them. And I'm saying it's so easy for that to bleed into us because of the competitiveness. How we're always graded and scored. I made the team. I didn't make the team. I got the honor roll. I didn't get the honor roll. I got into that college. I didn't get this college. I got that promotion. I didn't get this promotion. It grained into us. And it's easy then to adopt that and go, oh, well, I'm better than you. When Jesus came to be the least and for the lost and the last and the worst and the best. And what that means is then that can bleed into your thinking about Jesus that I'm not as bad as that person. I don't need Jesus quite as much as that person does. It's like being in the drive-thru and going through the drive-thru and like, yeah, I just need a regular-sized drink. That person needs super-sized. Like, I need regular-sized Jesus. <laughs> you need super-sized Jesus because, man, have you blown it. It's kind of like saying um, there's two people. You're both dying of disease. It's terminal. It's going to end. And you're like, yeah, but I'm a little bit better, really, so just give me a pill. That person, like, needs full-on IV drip throwing the chemo through it now. Really? The end is you're both dead. What you both need is life. We bo- whoever it is, we all need Jesus, and we need the same Jesus who fully forgives all of our sins. It's not better and worse. It's all, we're sunk, dead, unless Jesus breathes into us life. That's the power of the resurrection. James Boyce, I think I have a slide for this too. He has a commentary on the book of Acts, and and he writes this in it. He says, whenever you see yourself not as the clean animal, but the unclean animal, pronounced clean by the sheer grace of God in Jesus Christ, then you are ready to open your heart and your arms to other people. And it does not make any difference who they are. God does not show favorites. If you got in, the gospel must be for everybody. So the youth group should be open to new people who need Jesus. Your community group, your women's ministry, your men's ministry, our church should be open to all people. Because everybody needs Jesus. A supersized big Jesus. When God breaks barriers and brings people into his kingdom, it does not matter if they fit our preferences because we're family now. We're family. We're blood, related by the blood of Jesus. My biases and barriers were broken a lot in many different ways and don't have time to go into all that, and maybe you don't want to hear all those, but one of those ways was through repeated experiences on mission trips that I went on. So trips to go to different cultures and places inside the United States, outside the United States, that exposed some of my biases and my favoritism. When I was in high school, I went to the Dominican Republic, and we went and visited a leper colony, a hospital where lepers were left to die, missing fingers, noses, ears, 
just bedridden, knowing they're going to die, but hoping in God for healing in the next life, that Jesus would restore them. Being in Jamaica in an orphanage, looking at the orphans who desperately wanted to be part of a family, hoping that God would say, yes, you're my child. You can be part of my family. Twice I led a team for a week to a mission trip in inner city Philadelphia in a pretty bad part of town. A lot of homeless people, heroin addicts, prostitutes. We always had a cookout when we went, and we would invite people we met on the street that day to the cookout. And in my journal, I was looking back at it and reading it, and it was interesting to be reminded of this story. I'd met a guy named Fran, who was an Army Ranger, just got back from service. This was like 2001-ish, maybe 2000. He showed up, and he was seriously strung out at the cookout. Um, But he did show up, and he told us his story of what happened. He said, I grew up Catholic in the Army, came home, made some bad choices, had a bad roommate who was a dealer, went down into the city here to party for the weekend. It's been a week, and I'm still here, hooked on a heroin, living on the streets. Another guy named Joe, who also showed up and was a heroin addict, he had two grown daughters in their 20s. They wanted to be able to see, he wanted to be able to see them again, and he was a Christian. He's like, no, I really do believe, but he had made bad choices too, and he was in a bad spot. But he was entering a rehab facility the next week, trying to get out and get back so he could see his daughters. And I could go on and on in the stories about that. People who I see and go, wow, they have made a lot of bad choices. But one of the things God was teaching me through that week was, I've made a lot of bad choices too. And I'm no better than them. I need Jesus every bit as much as they do. No favorites, right? Peter embraces Cornelius. No favorites. After all, Jesus embraced you and me. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will help us to be people followers of the Savior, your Son, Jesus, who are so consumed with your grace and mercy and love that it leaks out of us everywhere, that we realize our favoritism, our blind spots. And would you reveal those to us? Help us to turn from them, to be sorry for that, and change our ways. And for those who are who are searching like Cornelius, Lord, I pray that you will work in their hearts. I pray that you will, that you'll speak to them in your own way, through a friend, through the scripture, in whatever way you reach them, Lord, would you give them answers to questions they're looking for? Would you shape their lives? Lord, we're thankful that you give us people and friends to be together with, so help us to be the kind of people that love one another well, because you have loved us to the end. 